This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 133. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and today I am joined by a very enthusiastic, energetic Jacob Paulson. Well, I'm here and I'm ready. Let's do this. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, in case anyone's wondering what 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 the deal there, we got a uh, mostly positive review from a podcast listener, which we really appreciate. Uh, <laughs> but they said Jacob needs to be more energetic. They basically said like I lost it. You know, and it's funny because uh, for those of you who've been listening for a long time, it's kind of like watching your kids grow up, right? Like grandparents come over, they haven't been here in six months. Like, oh my gosh, the kids have grown up so much; they're so big. But if you if you're the parent, you don't notice them growing. And so this podcast listener said they'd like you know binge listened to our pot like all hundred and something thirty podcast episodes in like two weeks or something. And so they noticed that my energy was dropping. And so to that I say, thanks for letting me know. Like I'm on this. Let's I'm I'm in. Let's do it. <laughs> By the way, that review came to us from Hi BFGGG. <laughs> so thank you, hi BFGGG, for listening to the podcast. And he said, "Love the podcast. Don't lose energy." Well, we're trying our best to keep the energy alive here. So, all right, enough of that. Uh, let's get into it. Today is our usual Monday episode of the podcast, meaning we're bringing to you from all across the country and sometimes the world a variety of amazing stories, news stories. Okay, sometimes they're not that amazing, but uh, we definitely want to do our best to inform, to educate. Uh, you, our listeners, and keeping you in the loop as to all things going on out there in the concealed carry and self-defense world. Today, we've got a host of great stories uh, talking about some interesting things going on legislatively. Uh, there's an update from Nevada re- with regards to reciprocity with another uh, state uh, with re- with regards to concealed carry per- permits. So if you are from Nevada or from, here's a hint, from Oregon, <laughs> you're going to want to uh, stay tuned and, and listen to today's episode to hear the details on that. Uh, also, some uh, we're going to talk about the Philando Castile incident today. We, in the last week, we had uh, the dash cam footage come out from uh, the police department, San Anthony Police Department, or I can't remember exactly what, which, uh, if that was a city or county, but anyway, uh, the dash cam footage is out. We watched it. We have a response to that whole situation. Uh, and also some great self-defense justified stories that we'll be talking about here today. So looking forward to it. You ready to get into it, Jacob? Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready, Riley. I've never been more ready. Okay. So first off, today's episode is brought to you by Guardian Nation. If you're looking for more training and better gear, join Guardian Nation to be part of the fastest growing and best prepared tribe of self-defense shooters nationwide. Members receive access to the concealedcarry.com shooter skill library, Guardian Nation live broadcasts, and the archive of past recordings, as well as 10% off everything sold at concealedcarry.com. Plus, you receive on your one-year anniversary a gift certificate to use towards any training course in our network which uh, is just going to be really awesome once we start hitting the year mark for some of our our members here soon. And also members receive a box of shooting gear four times a year worth at least the value of the membership. And one of the cool things, Jacob, is that we've got some really 
great new curriculum and training courses coming out. We just had this last weekend, uh, Friday, in fact, uh, our, our first ever Guardian Essentials Pistol course. We had several of our Guardian Nation members join us for that. And uh, I think the consensus was everyone had a really great time, learned a lot. We saw a lot of progress from the shooters, and uh, it was really fun hanging out with with some of our fellow Guardian Nation members. Didn't you think so? It was great. Uh, I'd like to believe that they learned a lot. Certainly, they wouldn't have said otherwise. We were holding guns at the time. But uh, (laughs) no, in, in all seriousness, it was a great experience. Yeah. And uh, by the way, we're pushing on it a little bit hard today because tomorrow night, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, we are having our Guardian Nation live broadcast for the month of June together with world champion shooter Rob Latham. So don't miss that. And if you missed listening to him on the podcast last Wednesday, you're going to want to check that out because it was a really informative and educational uh, episode if you especially if you're looking to how to up your game with regards to shooting fast and accurately so he's definitely the man when it, where it comes to that so uh, with that also being Monday we it's a tradition here to have a Monday training tip so let's get into our training tip today and this one is not real uh, it's not rocket science <laughs> but there is I think a little bit of science involved in this one and and that is train with realistic targets and yeah and I think that there's different varying levels of what that means too before you get into some of the science Riley I think when we talk about realistic targets that could mean a lot of things it could mean that um, you know like VTAC style style target where you know we see a skeletal structure or it could mean that it like you know it's Osama bin Laden's face on a paper, or it could mean it's just a human silhouette, or it could mean a lot of things. So I think maybe we also need to clarify, you know, what do we mean when we say realistic targets? Yeah. You know, what I think it means, Jacob, is using a target that conditions us to be able to pull the trigger when we need to, when faced with a human threat. Uh, I, I think a basic silhouette is leaps and bounds uh, of, you know, ahead in that regard compared to using a standard bullseye target. In fact, uh, this idea to talk about this today came to us from uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, uh, author of On Killing and the other book uh, On Combat, which you need to read those books if you haven't already. And I believe in both books, he talks about this idea that when you looked at statistics of how many soldiers actively participated in firing at enemy combatants during World War II? It was like 15 to 20% would actually pull the trigger when faced with enemy combatants. And they saw that increase to 55% per, per participation in Korea and around 95% participation in Vietnam. Now, there was a lot more that was done than just this, but one big change in training was transitioning from bullseye style targets in the early days to using silhouettes and more realistic, you know, human looking targets. Uh, So that uh, one factor alone had a big impact on conditioning human soldiers to be able to put sights on a human figure on a silhouette, you know, that's essentially what you're looking at when you're looking across in the, in the battlefield is a silhouette of a person being able to put the sights on target and pull the trigger. Now, I know that's that's pretty gruesome stuff there, but that's the reality of it. And I do think that there's something to be said there, you know, that we are 
better able to do that when we are actually practicing looking at a human form. Yeah. And now a lot of gun ranges won't allow this. So you might, you know, make that phone call before you march down there with your new awesome targets you bought online and find out that you're, you know, you can't use them. Um, so, you know, get as close as you can. That, that'd that be my thought is, you know, there's a range here. Certainly the human silhouette is better than the bullseye target, right? Um, but neither is good as something that's just straight up human looking like a hostage style, you know, target or something like that. So, you know, get as close as you can, but, you know, check and find out the place you go most regularly, what kind of targets are allowed. You know, I don't know what ranges you go to, Jacob, but most of the ranges I, I've never, I have yet personally to be to one that didn't allow me to use whatever image on a target that I wanted to. But well, I, I have Google stories. Yeah, when I was searching this, you know, looking for information from uh, from Grossman, you know, because it's been a while since I, fin- I finished that book, I don't know, last year sometime. And I, I was, we were trying to find the stats, right? So I was Googling it and I found tons of news stories about ranges that were disallowing and prohibiting humanoid type targets. So uh, apparently that's a thing. Yeah. Similarly, where I go, it's not an issue. Are those ranges in uh, Southern New California or New York City or New Jersey? <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure plenty of them are, but we or have Boston. listeners in all of those places. <laughs> no, I have heard those things. And in fact, you know what? That reminds me. There's a there's a group out there. I, I think I found it on Facebook once uh, where they were like – they were basically they're, – they're fighting against these – you know, humanoid targets. And their answer was to create works of art to shoot at. And so they are like making these custom art pieces and they, they look like Jackson Pollock paintings of just like random <laughs> you know, splashes of paint and color on, on a paper target. And here, this is a much better target to use than these humanoid you know, or, you know, or silhouette targets. <laughs> like impressionistic artistic and form. I was looking at some of them like, what do you even aim at when you shoot at one of those things? Uh, I'll have to find that again and, and share some yeah. uh, photos with you. But anyway, <laughs> all right. So anyway, train using a realistic targets. Uh, that's the training tip for today. Also, today's episode is brought to you by Sports Afield and Mantis X. And so with that, we're going to get into our very first news story, which is how Nevada is now honoring Oregon concealed carry permits. And uh, we just barely published this story. So this is brand new news out just just today. A few minutes ago, Jacob hit the publish button on the website uh, and and. J- so here we are on the podcast a few minutes later recording this. So Nevada updated their official website to reflect a new reciprocity arrangement that they finalized with the state of Oregon. And so this means those of you that have a concealed carry permit, uh, and this applies to both resident and non-resident permits from the state of Oregon, you can carry concealed in Nevada per uh, Nevada concealed carry law. Uh, and, that, and when I say resident and non-resident permits, if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Jacob, in Oregon... Uh, well, not in Oregon. If you are in a state that borders Oregon, you can get an Oregon non-resident permit. Uh, is that right? Yeah. So someone in California, Washington, or Idaho, I don't know, maybe Nevada, but yeah, well, I'd have to look at the map. Yeah, correct. Nevada if you're bordering, yeah. Oh, the other exception is for active duty military. So maybe you're from Florida, but you're, act, you're active duty military in Oregon. You could get a non-resident Oregon permit if I, if I remember correctly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Nevada passed HB once or not HB SB 175 last year, or was that two years ago? Yeah, it was 2015. And so we've seen a lot of new states that Nevada has chosen to honor since they passed that law. And uh, so yeah, Oregon's la- latest one. And forgive me, I got to I got to issue a correction. I realized it after I said it. I'm like, wait a minute, no, Oregon does border Nevada. Uh, when I said it, I was thinking of Washington. Uh, anyway, little Freudian slip there, but 
Anyway, there you go. That's good stuff there. So if you're uh, uh, from Oregon or you have one of those Oregon non-resident permits, uh, we look forward to seeing you be able to carry concealed in Nevada. All right, next up, and this is kind of a, I I think this is kind of a similar story to some extent because we're talking about travel. And uh, this next story is also recently published on our website, and that is how to safely travel with your firearm to national parks. Now, Jacob, you're kind of the brainchild behind this one. I mean, you're Dear, you're the expert as far as I'm concerned. You're always, you know, keeping me up to date with uh, these sorts of things. So uh, tell us a little bit about this story about, you know, how do you safely, properly, legally carry, you know, your firearms to national parks? Yeah. So, you know, I, I just was in Yellowstone, as you know, this uh, recently. And so this was fresh on my mind and thought it was worth talking about. And, you know, this could be a whole podcast episode, but I'll try and, you know, go through some of the rough points. Many of you probably recall that in 2010, a new law was approved and signed by Barack Obama. And in that law, there was a provision that essentially said that the Secretary of the Interior shall not promulgate or enforce any regulation that prohibits an individual from possessing a firearm, including an assembled or functional firearm in any unit of the national park system. However, the problem is the devil's in the details on this one because, you know, even though the law essentially said, okay, we're no longer going to prohibit guns in national parks, the law also essentially said that the possession of the firearm has to be in compliance with the law of the state in which in which the unit of the national park system or national wildlife wildlife refuge system is located. So in the case of Yellowstone, the vast majority of Yellowstone, as you know very well, Riley, is in Wyoming, not Idaho, and so for the most part, you have to be in compliance with Wyoming firearm law when you're in the Wyoming parts of Yellowstone. And similarly, if we're in Rocky Mountain National Park here in Colorado, we have to be in the compliance of Colorado firearm laws. And so while it's great that the the firearm, the law, the federal law no longer restricts, uh, you know, has any restrictions relative to guns. Well, I shouldn't say any, but doesn't have a, a blanket restriction on firearms in national parks. There's still some things. So, so here's just a couple things to, to bear in mind. Um, number one, some parks cover multiple states. We were just talking about Yellowstone. You know, if I'm in Yellowstone and I go in from the Wyoming part of Yellowstone into the Montana part of Yellowstone, I now have to be a compliant with Montana state law, even though I'm in the same national park. So that's something to consider. Um, some guns could be prohibited. So, you know, bear in mind that while, you know, a state may allow that I take a firearm into a park, maybe the gun I brought with me is not allowed there. Maybe there's magazine capacity issues or you know, other regulations that, that make my awesome gun that I just brought across the country in my RV illegal uh, in this state and thus in that national park in that state. Um, a concealed carry permit may be required. That's another thing to consider. Maybe you know that, that state allows guns in that national park, but you have to have a permit that's honored by that state when in that national park in that state. Uh, another thing to think about is public transportation. You know, if you cruise into a lot of these national parks where parking lots are very limited at some of the main, um, you know, attractions, then they have these offsite, you know, parking lots. Then they they shuttle you around on these buses around the park. Well, those buses are public transportation, and depending on the state laws, that may be prohibited from guns. Um, also, another real huge consideration. This is probably the thing that gets most people in trouble. Is you may not think there's an issue and you've researched it and said, oh, I can take guns into state parks uh, and, 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 and national parks in XYZ state, but the buildings in that state 
or excuse me, the buildings in that national park may be prohibited from guns because those buildings could be federal buildings or they might be owned by some other third-party operator that also prohibits guns. So in the case of Yellowstone, for example, most of the buildings, uh, if it's a visitor center, for example, that's owned by the feds, it's off limits because it's a federal building. We all should know that. But like a lodge is operated by Zantera Parks and Resorts and they prohibit guns also and they, they post it. Um, so a lot of the buildings may be off limits, even though you can take the gun with you into the park. Um, and so there's a lot of little things like that you got to be careful about. And so I would I would just say, hey, if you're going to go travel and you're going to visit some national parks or national monuments or national memorials or anything else operated by the National Park Service, you should probably go read this article. How was that, Riley? Wow. Uh, that was a whirlwind of a summary and uh, fantastic. I'm sure there's a lot of information there that uh, many listeners are not aware of. Uh, I was actually going to say, too, that there's actually national parks, too, where, uh, well, and, and maybe you touched on this. I don't remember exactly uh, for sure. Not, uh, but, uh, you know, one thing that I see a lot of times when I go to national park is, uh, you know, particularly if you, like, look at the brochures or the maps they give you when you enter the park, it'll say uh, sometimes there'll be something in there that even addresses concealed carry or, or possession of firearms in the park. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, one thing that I have seen for sure is where it'll say, you know, discharge for of a firearm uh, for any reason within that park is against federal law, suggesting that Correct. even if I had to use my gun to defend myself, you know, I'd get myself in trouble legally. However, there are a number of national parks where you actually can hunt within the boundaries of the national parks. And some examples of that are Grand Teton National Park, uh, Amistad uh, Re- National Recreation Area, Lake Roosevelt, Ro- Roosevelt National Recreation Area. And I didn't realize those are recreation areas and not national parks. But a lot of times these national recreation areas too uh, will have restrictions uh, with regards to farms as well. And so, because these all fall under the National Parks Service system, uh, which really when that law that you mentioned was passed in 2010, it was specific to the National Parks, uh, you know, uh, National Correct. Park Service system of, of, of properties. And so, uh, anyway, that's one of my favorite examples. I love Grand Teton National Park. I think you visited there as well a couple weeks ago. I did. And that is actually a park where uh, I remember, you know, friends and family talking about hunting in, uh, in in Grand Teton National Park. So Yeah, you Idahoans. I know you love it. And there's some so, in uh, Alaska, too. I know there's several national parks up there where, where hunting is permitted. So anyway. There's just a lot of national parks in Alaska, I might add. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's actually kind of interesting. There's 59 national parks. Eight of them are in Alaska. So just to give you some context... That's right. a lot. And, and um, some of them are huge. <laughs> yeah, they are. We're very lucky. We have four in Colorado. But um, yeah, be, be careful out there and, and just, just research it. I will say this. The Traveler's Guide book that we've we've promoted a lot in the past, and we sell buco copies of it on our website, it does have a really good reference to can you carry national parks in this state, yes or no? But again, just you know, having that yes or no is very important. It's a good starting point. But there's some other things you might want to know about firearm regulations in that state, um, you know, before you go jotting into that national park. Yeah. Well, there you go. Speaking of Alaska, our next news story is titled "Alaska Man Who Brought Down Bear Proves Versatility of Carrying," and this is quite an exciting story. Uh, this happened around uh, six thirty in the morning on May twenty fifth where a man was outside of his house when out of nowhere, a 725-pound brown bear uh, uh, came onto his property. Uh, According to wildlife experts, a brown bear, even one of that size, is not likely to ever attack a human. Rather, it would be afraid and run off. However, this was not the case with this particular encounter. 
according to the Department of Fish and Game, Wildlife Regional Su- Supervisor Ryan Scott, the man had seen the bear and noticed pretty quickly that it was not following the normal bear rules because this animal just kept coming towards the man. Quoting from him, he said, apparently this bear turned around and faced the homeowner. The homeowner felt it was imminent it coming to him. Uh, this man then took out his firearm and did exactly what he felt he needed to do and began shooting the bear, eventually bringing it down. So, uh, this is, I mean, it's, uh, we see a couple of these stories like this, uh, each year. In fact, there was a, there was a, a story last year. I remember of a man in uh, Montana where he was attacked, uh, brutally by a grizzly bear. Uh, and you know, he did his best to fight back. Uh, but the, the, the focus of that story is how he couldn't get to his gun and he was not able to use it. He did not have a chance to use it to defend himself from that attack. And he was lucky to survive that one. Uh, this man was able to get to his gun that day and, uh, it made a, a difference as far as, uh, saving his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, here's the the cool thing about this story, and I, I think uh, Craig, who works with you know on our team, and he wrote this story, um, he makes a really good point, and he says the chance of a brown bear having to be shot in self defense is incredibly rare for Douglas Island, where this incident took place, as this is only the second known case of such an event occurring since the 1970s. But it does go to prove a correct common argument against those of us who carry a weapon for self defense. Just because something rarely happens doesn't mean it never happens. And so anyway, it was, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of fun to talk about, you know, the bear and the story and it's very interesting and intriguing and poor bear and all that stuff. But I think, you know, kind of th- what I would have you take from this is, <laughs> you know what, just because something doesn't often happen doesn't mean it never happens, right? Just because your neighborhood is super safe all the time or because, one person has been killed in a tornado in Colorado since 1952 doesn't mean it couldn't happen today, right? Things can happen, even though they really wouldn't happen or aren't normal or they're rare. That doesn't mean it never happens. So carry every day, right? Be ready. Yeah. You know, just because I'm a little bit passionate about the subject, uh, as I've spent quite a bit of time in bear country and grew up in, you know, very much what we would consider grizzly bear country uh, in Idaho, uh, and, uh, do you, do you guys have grizzly bears in Wyoming too? Oh yeah. Yeah. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? I couldn't help myself. <laughs> of course you do. Anyway. So, um, you know, I, I really believe in carrying a uh, bear spray with myself, you know, with me whenever I'm in, uh, in the back country. Uh, but I also believe in carrying, uh, a sidearm, a, a gun of some sort as well for self-defense. Uh, 44 Magnum is what I consider to be my, my minimum, uh, with those types of, uh, guns, uh, for, for, you know, large bears. Uh, I think this guy was using a 454 Casul, which is even better. It's a little bit, a little bit bigger, quite a bit more powerful. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I know, I, I know some people that are, you know, more tree huggerish <laughs> that, uh, have sometimes given me looks, uh, you know, at, at my gun on my hip and kind of like, well, you know, bear spray has proven to be more effective. And it's like, you know what? I have my bear spray on one hip and I got my gun on my other hip. I believe in having options. And, uh, I've definitely seen instances and read stories too, where bear spray did not work. And at that point, it's like, you know what? Got to go to plan B and that is pull out the sidearm and you better be, mm-hmm. you know, prepared and well-trained uh, to use it if, if need be. Well, I'll say two other things. Um, Yellowstone is, has really ramped up their bear awareness stuff. Uh, all the visitors, all the gift shops, for example, now sell bear spray, all of them. Right. 
um, and they have a lot of more messaging in a lot more places than they used to. Um, but uh, just you know, because Wyoming versus Idaho ongoing debate, Riley Jacob, you should be aware there are 1,500 grizzlies left in the lower 48 states of the U.S. Of those, 800 live in Montana, 600 more live in Wyoming. And there's an estimated 70 to 100 in northern and eastern Idaho. So there you have it. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. So next story uh, out of Florida, where the Florida Department of Children and Families got a huge surprise when conducting an investigation into possible child neglect at a home in Boynton Beach, Florida, as a three-year-old child pulled a gun on them when searching through his toy box. Wow. <laughs> That's serious. This kid, uh, he he meant business when you know he probably told him, "Don't you dare, you know, rummage around in my toy box." Uh, now, okay, so not to make light of a obviously a pretty serious uh, story here. Uh, like I said, they were uh, the the Department of Children and Families was there to investigate a potential child neglect uh, situation. Uh, they had received some reports of this, and uh, uh, they also suspected the man living in the house that uh, was likely one of the caretakers of this child was also selling drugs. Uh, and so it's probably pretty apparent that there is a problem of neglect here. If this three-year-old uh, is able to just, for whatever reason, get his hands on a gun uh, and pull it on these uh, investigators. Well, pull it is relative. He, I mean, it says that during the interview, you know, with, with the family, the child was playing with his toys and began removing several of the toys from his toy box, one of which was a box of books. Inside the box of books, the child pulled out a 9mm handgun, much to the shock of the officials and the mother herself. <laughs> and then it says, essentially, some D DCF agent jumps up, grabs the gun from the child, and as soon as he's, you know, assumed the firearm, finds out that the safety was off and it was loaded with a round in the chamber. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's all be responsible parents, shall we? Yeah, I mean, this one was about to be in our next study of negligent discharges we do. So, you know, I mean, uh, and, and for those of you, I think we did a whole episode just about, the, you know, the 300 negligent discharges research that we, yeah. we pulled out. But the link is also in this article if you get to it. Um, mm -hmm. These stories happen, and usually they end much, much more sad than this. So... Uh, we got we got to learn from other people's mistakes. Yeah, and that was uh, episode 106. Anybody that would like to go back and listen to that, uh, the uh, title: "What Studying 300 Negligent Discharge Stories Teaches You." Well, this one definitely, you know, uh, just it, we know that there's bad parents out there and, uh, and and neglectful parents, and sometimes, unfortunately, there's parents that are simply forgetful and they forget where. Uh, a gun was placed or forget to secure a weapon. Uh, there's a lot of reasons as to why children get their hands on guns and sometimes shoot themselves or shoot uh, you know, a, a brother or a sister or another uh, child friend. But, uh, you know, none of these are excusable. So anyway, uh, next up, this is uh, our response to the Philando Castile shooting. Uh, the Well, we talked about it last year in one of our episodes. I don't remember which one exactly, but uh, uh, we definitely talked about it. And now the report is, of course, uh, you know, most people are probably aware it's been it's been the news for the last week where the officer, Geronimo uh, Yanez, I guess, he uh, he was found he was acquitted of charges in that case. Uh, so is, is, the story goes for those that are not familiar is he pulled over. Uh, the uh, uh, 
the, the individual, Philando Castile, of course, uh, who had also in his vehicle a girlfriend uh, and the girlfriend's four or five-year-old daughter. And he was pulled over for uh, basically not having a working taillight. In fact, uh, two out of his three taillights on the vehicle were not functioning. And Relevant point is that he's not the driver. The girlfriend is driving. He's no, the actually, actually, he is the driver. Uh, that's no. that's a that's a point of confusion amongst a lot of particip- a lot of viewers, because the Facebook Live video that she did, a lot of times Facebook Live is is reversed, is mirrored. Oh, and I so, didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that that actually is that's a very that? that's a very common uh, misconception. And so the dash cam footage, you you watch it, and you know the officer approaches on the driver's side of the vehicle. And that is where uh, Mr. Castile is seated, is in the driver's seat. And so, yeah, that that Facebook Live video that went, you know, viral uh, has confused a lot of people. I, I even saw comments on the sure. dash cam video, you know, people saying, that's, this, this doesn't make any sense. Because, like, they, some people even suggested that the uh, footage had been doctored because they're like... He came up on the passenger side of the vehicle, yet the dash cam footage is showing him approaching the driver's side driver's of the vehicle. Side. Sure, sure. So it's a darn sorry. Facebook. J- Jacob fell victim to the, the confusion. <laughs> so anyway. Move, move uh, forward. So uh, he approaches the, the driver's side uh, window, um, explains why he had pulled over the driver, uh, you know, the driver, Mr. Castile, and uh, asks him for his driver's license, insurance, registration. At that point... Philando Castile uh, says that, sir, I have to tell you, I do have a firearm on me. And at this point, you see in the dash cam video, the officer uh, put his hand on his gun and begin, you know, releasing any retention devices and starts to kind of, you know, he's getting ready. And he tells uh, Mr. Castile, don't, don't pull it out. Uh, you know, leave your hands there. Don't, don't reach, don't reach for it. Essentially what he keeps telling him. And there's just Real quick back and forth where clearly there's some confusion between the officer and Philando Castile. Uh, Castile continues to supposedly reach for uh, something. And we, you know, the thinking is that he's reaching for his wallet. But uh, the officer testified that he saw him reaching for something and that the type of grip that Philando Castile was using and the width of his grip seemed that it was too wide for it to be a simple wallet. And so he perceived that his life was in danger and he proceeded to draw his gun and fire seven shots into the vehicle, uh, killing Mr. Castile. I believe five of the seven shots hit him. Uh, so, you know, very controversial. A lot of people, you know, up in arms about it uh, all across the country. And uh, now the dashcam video, you know, kind of shows more of the story. Uh, the, the Facebook Live thing that you know, came out last year was she started that feed after the shooting had taken place. Uh, so now for the first time we see what kind of led up to that point. And just so that it's clear from the time that the officer, you know, steps up to the window to the time the shooting occurs, it's very, very fast. What I explained happens in literally seconds. Uh, so it, it's very tragic. It, it shouldn't have happened. I'll tell you that much. I, I, com- I completely agree with anyone that would suggest this should not have happened. And, I think it's arguable that some blame could be placed on the officer and also some blame could be placed on Mr. Castile. Yeah. So let's break down some of the relevant stuff here and and see if we can extract some good lessons um, for us and for our listeners to take away from this. Right. So 
one thing that I thought was interesting that I didn't know when we originally reported on the story that I found out only now that the trial um, has finalized is that Mr. Castile was under the influence of a drug. And I think that's that's potentially relevant, at least in terms of giving you context. Is it relevant in terms of the officer's actions being good, bad, foolish, or not? Perhaps not. Um, but it does give you some context into maybe why Mr. Castile made some of the mistakes that we're going to talk about that he made. And so it was marijuana. And as it were, if it had been here in Colorado, um, while marijuana here in Colorado is legal, it's still not legal if you're carrying a gun. Um, and, and so that's something that you got to be a little bit careful about for you gun owners out there. You know, marijuana, as we all know, is still illegal at the federal level and guns are in many ways regulated at the federal level. And we have actually a very extensive long article that goes into some depth on our website about marijuana and guns and uh, how the laws kind of play together. And it's, it's a little complex. But in this state, in Minnesota, where this uh, incident took place, there is no legalized uh, marijuana and certainly not legalized marijuana, you know, next to a gun. And so consider that first and foremost. Uh, in my mind, I think it adds some context to the story that he may not have been thinking as clearly, he may not have acted um, as well as he might have had he, you know, been a little bit more clear in the mind. Yeah. So, uh, Officer, uh, Yan- Yan- is it Yanez? Uh, Yanez, I'm assuming, because it says it says yeah. that uh, Mr. Castile is African-American, he's black, and it says that the officer, Yanez, is Mexican-American. So I'm okay. assuming, pronounce it like it's Spanish. Yeah, so he, you know, one thing he stated is that he detected uh, the, the smell of marijuana from the vehicle as he approached. And uh, I think part of the perception that he had because of that, and amongst other things, was that, hey, if this guy has a gun on him and he is, you know, consuming marijuana together with, you know, I mean, it's basically he's breaking the law, um, you know, and also he, he talked about how, you know, this, this guy was obviously smoking marijuana in the presence of, uh, of a, of a child in the back. So basically his, his perception was this guy may not be, um, you know, in his right mind or, 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 you know, he, he, he may not be making sound logical decisions because he's clearly willing to uh, do certain things uh, in a, in the presence of a child uh, that most normal people wouldn't do. And also is, you know, knowingly, uh, well, likely knowingly uh, breaking the law. And thus, you know, he felt like that may mean that this guy would not, you know, that Mr. Castile would not have any uh, care for the life of the, of, of this officer, of Officer Yanez. So, you know, basically, the short of the long is, and I appreciate your thoughts, Jacob, is that, like I said, we have two parties here that likely made mistakes. Uh, there's probably some things that Mr. Castile could have done to handle the traffic stop differently that uh, might have gone better for him. Uh, because, you know, and then also the officer, uh, it seems to me watching the dash cam video that he goes from being very calm and collected to almost seeming very nervous very quickly. And maybe he got, you know, a little bit out of control, uh, you know, because of that sudden nervousness. Um, here's another thing. This would be my final thought, I think, to this. I think another lesson learned from this is that departments across America I think this would be wise to implement, and that would be training, specific training to dealing with legally carrying citizens. 
I'll tell you, in the you know, as a as a law enforcement uh, auxiliary officer myself, and uh, knowing and working with many departments and other officers through the years, uh, this is not something I have ever seen where they specifically have training that prepares officers to dealing with legally carrying citizens, because I think that would probably go a long ways to giving some officers the tools, uh, whether it be communication tools, whether, you know, it be, you know, just various, uh, interaction tools as far as how to interact with and deal with, uh, law abiding, concealed carrying or otherwise, you know, it could be open carrying too, but a lot of times it's concealed carry we're concerned with here, uh, how to deal with those types of citizens and, and handle those interactions. I have not ever seen or heard of that type of training take place. And I think it might be wise for departments going forward because we have more concealed carriers now than ever in the history of this country. That means there's more and more of these of CCWers like us that officers are coming in contact with. And it might be a good idea, I think. Uh, what do you think about that type of policy change? Well, I th- well you're, the, you're the officer here, right? Like I'm, I'm not a cop. I've not been in law enforcement. But I'm frankly... I frankly don't believe you. What I mean is that I think that for the most part, I got to assume that most departments do to some degree. And I'm not saying it's very formal or maybe it's very good, but I'm saying that the majority of departments have got to give their officers some sort of direction on how to deal with armed citizens. Like I have a hard time believing that they're all out there with no direction whatsoever. Um, and in, in fact, I, I know of departments that not only have they have training, but they have very specific procedures and policies. So I don't, I think that, and you know that, so I know that you, I don't think you explained what you meant well um, relative well, I, to the training. I, I don't, I no. I'm talking in the training that I have attended and in many other departments I've interacted with, uh, and I've reviewed curriculum of post, you know, academy training, uh, where there is not a specific, I'm talking a specific, uh, uh, what's, what, what would be the word? Um, uh, section Best practice, uh, no, a section, like a, oh, a okay. part of their training that is dedicated to dealing with these types of interactions. Okay, there, that's, that's there, fair. There's little things that throughout training uh, and through experience, including on the job training for a lot of cops, where there, there's these little, you know, they get a little bit of training here and there, but it's not consistent, nor is it focused on, you know, from at least from what I've seen, nor is it focused on that specific type of interaction at length. I would suggest, you know, a couple, several hours, uh, you know, I'd say four hours. Just as a, if I'm just to pull a number out of my head, that's dedicated to that type of training and that type of interaction. That, that's fair, but I, I don't think it's fair to to suppose that officers are running around with no direction at all. No, uh, that, uh, they, that they have no clue what to do. I wasn't saying yeah. that. I was talking about a because you have to understand that in the law enforcement community, Jacob, in the law enforcement profession, uh, training is a lot at. A lot at by and large, in most jurisdictions in most states, is mandated usually at a state level, uh, as far as what you know, an officer has to go through to be given a badge to sure. be considered post certified. Because most states have what what they call post peace officer standards and training, and so they have a mandated uh, format and curriculum and num- a certain number of hours that must be completed to become post certified. And that's what I'm talking about, like a part of that curriculum with specific training that deals with that. Does sure. that make sense? 
that, that's fair. So let, let me get to some of the other. No, uh, uh, yes, that makes sense. I'm sorry if I didn't give you some. Uh, yes, like Stamp so Jacob says, good call, Riley. Now, now I'm going to move on. Uh, so some other some other things I think are really relevant. Um, I, I want to make sure that citizens, people who are listening to this, don't feel scared. Right. If you're like, oh my gosh, like I'm gonna go get shot if I I'm not gonna carry my gun anymore because if I happen to get pulled over, some officer is gonna shoot me. Like I don't think that you need to hear this news story and stop carrying a gun because first off and foremost, you should know that concealed carriers are pulled over in traffic stops all the time. <laughs> you know, it happens regularly. I mean, happens to me once or twice a year, and, and I've yet to be shot. So, so this is definitely an outlier event. So, I think first and foremost, that's that's the thing for you to understand is this is not normal. It's an outlier event. Um, the second thing I think that's really important to communicate is that the order of words matters a lot, right? If I walk into the airport and I walk up to the trap, the ticket ca- ticket counter, and I say, "Hey, uh, I got a gun, and uh, I need I need to check it in my luggage." That's significantly different versus uh, I need to check. I need to I need to declare that I'm checking a firearm in my luggage today. Um, so the order of words matters, and in this case, you know, the armed citizen led with, "Sir, I have to tell you, I do have a firearm on me." And as the officer said, you know, cons- said, "Don't pull it out, don't pull it out." That that was it. I mean. So leading with, sir, I need to tell you I have a concealed handgun permit and I'm armed or and I have a firearm on me is a completely different kind of lead. So I think order of words matters. Um, I think that would be one thing to to take away from this if you're the citizen is, okay, I, I got to be, when I, you know, when I get confronted by a law enforcement officer, I can't lead with, hey, officer, just want to let you know I got a gun. Like, that's a bad idea. I mean, I'm not saying that you're going to get shot. I'm saying that that's probably not preferable to officer, I have a, a concealed handgun permit, which is basically your way of saying I have training, I've spent money, I've passed a background check. Um, and then yes, I, I am armed. Um, so I think that's that's first and foremost. And, and anyone who's ever had any concealed handgun permit ever, hopefully was taught that you don't reach for the gun. And not only do you not reach for the gun, but you keep your hands visible all times. You don't reach for your wallet. You don't reach for the insurance registration. You keep your hands visible because the officer, you know, that's all that matters is where your hands are. And so reaching around the car is a really poor idea. So I think what I'm trying to say is don't let this scare you because if you're following what I would deem the best practices in the industry, and we can you know, pull hairs and split hairs and is what I mean to say. We can split hairs about what the best practices should be and this versus that method or whatever. But at the end of the day, I mean, any best practice in our industry that we have ever talked about and considered would probably have prevented this. So that those are some of the things that might have been done wrong by our driver in this case, right? That, you know, was he under the influence of something? Yes. Did he lead with the fact that he had a permit? No, he didn't. He led with the fact that he had a gun. Did he keep his hands visible at all times? No, he did not. So three real easy things that I think that prevent these incidents from happening all the time across America every day. Um, but, you know, in, in, you know, like we said, the officer probably made some mistakes here as well. And I'll, I'm going to toss it back to you, Riley, but I, I, I do want to say this. If you watch the video, and I, cause I, I think it's an important, relevant point, and it's not the only thing that matters, but it is relevant. The first time Castile said the words, sir, I have to tell you, I do have a firearm on me. The officer did go for his, he did go for his gun. He put his hand on his gun. He, probably disable some retention. It's hard to say. I can't tell really from the video, but did he start freaking out shooting right away, Riley? No, no, he did not. He issued a command and at first he seemed calm and then he went from calm to, to, you know, very freaking out nervous very quickly. But 
it, just the simple fact that that man had a gun did not flip his trigger. It was it was continued things that happened after he was informed of the yeah. gun. Well, based on uh, the statements from the officer, and I have no reason to necessarily believe that he's lying. Uh, and I'll also state that you know if you watch the full dash cam video, you can you know it's like ten minutes long, and towards the end you hear him talking to his supervisor, to a supervising officer, most likely a sergeant, and explaining what happened. And uh, uh, you know, together with that part of the dash cam video uh, where he's talking, you know, he's talking to a supervisor off supervising officer uh, just moments after the incident. And then also his statements in the courtroom, which are all pretty consistent. Uh, so I have no reason to necessarily believe he's lying. I suspect like you were explaining that when upon, upon learning that the, that Castile had a uh, firearm, he did not immediately become alarmed. Uh, maybe he began to take a couple of, uh, uh, preparatory steps as far as like making sure, okay, all right, this guy's got a gun. I'm just going to at least make sure I'm ready. But, uh, I suspect that what continued, what, what happened that, that, uh, escalated the nervousness in that officer was Castile continuing to reach for, let's just suppose his ID. And so, Anyway, um, here's what I here here's what I would say as best practice as just kind of a summary to this whole thing. Um, you talked a lot about how Castile said, "You know, I have a firearm," and that was maybe not the best uh, approach uh, as far as you know leading with that type of statement. Here's here's what I could tell you: He would not have gotten shot if he had said nothing. And had simply got his wallet upon being asked to do so and producing his driver's license together with his concealed handgun license together with his insurance and registration and handed all that to the officer. What do you think would the officer would have done upon flipping through those documents and seeing his concealed handgun permit? Yeah, he would have asked he was, if he was armed. Yeah. And the moment would have already been passed where there would be no no longer any need for Castile to continue reaching for anything because he'd already given everything over. See what I mean? And and so that's what I always suggest to students of mine is just hand over your permit together with your driver's license. Don't even say anything. I just don't see any need to open your mouth. Just hand them the stuff and be done with it. And they're gonna they're gonna get the message. They're gonna be like, "Oh, you handed me a permit. Obviously, that means something." And they'll either ask about it, or in some instances that I've been involved in, it's like, "Okay, great, thanks for letting me know. You know, I don't need this permit. Here you go, hand it back." Um, here's the other thing: keep your identification, your paperwork, and stuff in a location in the vehicle that is far, far, far. I mean, and I don't mean like, <laughs> okay, let me let me clarify. I don't recommend necessarily keeping those documents in your glove box on the opposite side of the car. Um, I don't mean put it in a far part of, your, of, of the back seat of the, of the vehicle. I mean, don't put your wallet and any other documents that you need to produce to a law enforcement officer if you are stopped in a moving vehicle. Don't put those documents in your back pocket inches away from your gun. Have them in a pocket on the door in the sun visor or just be have a, a way of having them ready by the time the officer even can get out of his vehicle. So that's that's my mode of practice is having things prepared in such a way that when I am asked to produce them, in fact, I have them in my lap already 
because I keep everything right where I can get to it immediately upon being pulled over without drawing any sort of attention to myself or give the officer any reason to suspect I'm doing something, you know, wrong or suspicious. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that's not my method, but I don't, you know, my, I'm slightly different. And of course I think mine is superior, but uh, if you really care, you can go listen to episode three where we really hash that out. <laughs> well, you can't deny that, that my method would not get you shot. Most likely. It would not get you shot. Most okay. likely, but I still think mine's better. Disagree. <laughs> Agree to disagree. Uh, Agree that's, to disagree. That's certainly the case. Jacob likes to say, I have a gun. No, he doesn't. Anyway. No, I don't. <laughs> he, likes, he also likes to get pulled over a couple times a year. <laughs> that's all. That is true. I, I, I do tend to get pulled over more often than most people. Lead foot. Lead foot. <laughs> all right. So let's move on to Illinois now. Uh, a little, you know, a little ways south of Minnesota where we've been focused on the last uh, 20 minutes talking about Philando Castile. And in Illinois, the governor signs a bill to crack down on criminals who are repeat gun offenders. Now, Jacob, you you dove into this one a little bit in detail. So I'm going to let you uh, take the lead on this story. And I think that we said that this was coming. I think a week or two ago on our podcast, we talked about how this was pending a signature. So it's been signed. So essentially what it does is it says that for repeat offenders who use firearms, the minimum goes from three to seven years. So before it was, you could be sentenced anywhere from three to 14 years. Now it's, you could be sentenced anywhere from seven to 14 years. So essentially a minimum of four more, you know, the minimum is increased by four years. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of drama out there about whether or not this is going to help anything or not. I certainly don't think it can hurt that much. Um, though there, I did find an interesting one on like the Chicago Tribune or something about how this is going to cost taxpayers billions of dollars because there's going to be more people in prisons. Um, but I think the majority of taxpayers would rather have those people in prison than on the street. So that's my two cents. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, this is... <sighs> I mean, I generally agree with you, Jacob, uh, absolutely, but it's such a tough, tricky thing uh, because, you know, on one hand, uh, we do have a huge load on our uh, prison system in this country, and that has problems, and it creates other problems and unforeseen problems, Uh, but at the same time, like, I just can't live with myself, you know, thinking or knowing that we put violent criminals back on the streets, uh, in some cases, uh, very quickly, meaning like I've seen cases where a guy that used a gun in the commission of a crime is back out of prison in like 18 months. And it's like, how does that happen? And certainly that cannot be a good thing. No, and I, I agree. I mean, it, it's a messy, it's a messy thing. I mean, legislators want to be seen doing something. Um, and so, they, they, you know, it's a lot of things that are debatable. This is probably pretty low hanging fruit, particularly in Illinois. It's probably pretty low hanging fruit. Um, you know, we have a higher percentage of our population incarcerated than any other nation on earth. So it, it is a problem. Like I get it. I get it. It's a huge drain on taxpayers, but I, I don't have a, I don't have an alternate, so I'm, yeah. I'll just keep my mouth shut. Well, and that's yeah, that's I think that's kind of the point is I don't know if there's a better option or solution, uh, but uh, what we do know is that v- the vast majority of violent offenders commit violent crimes again when they are back out of prison. Um, we could talk about all sorts of reform programs that take place within the prison system itself and still the vast majority of of those violent offenders and participants in those reform programs still yet are not reformed 
So uh, I, I think, unfortunately, like you said, I mean, there's no better option. And, we, you know, so I, I applaud Illinois for uh, wanting to uh, have tougher sentencing for these uh, violent and repeat offenders. So anyway, uh, now on to... Uh, a Canadian story, and this this one's great. Uh, this one really put a smile on my face because of recent events that I had the pleasure of partaking in. Uh, as far as you know, a couple weeks ago we were in South Dakota filming a a world record attempt going for a five thousand yard shot with a rifle, and uh, I have more to talk about that at some point in the future. But uh, what? This story, this story featured on foxnews.com was uh, about a Canadian sniper that just set the world record uh, as far as a confirmed kill with a sniper rifle. And this was done at 2.2 miles, 3,000, uh, was it 3,540 meters? That is a long stinking ways. <laughs> you know not only is it a long way, but human gets to be a really small target at that distance. I mean, the distance itself is phenomenal. Like, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to think how to like put that in perspective, right? Like how many football fields, you know, I'm trying to think like how to, how to make that seem. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty simple, Jacob. Uh, a football field is 100 yards. So how, yeah, how many yards is this shot? 35, 40 meters. I don't know. I'm not that smart. You know, it's funny because I thought I saw it reported that it was 35, 40 yards, but no, I guess, you know, right here on another, on, on another source, uh, sources website, 3,540 meters, uh, which would be, I think roughly 3,900 yards, 3,800 yards. Google will tell me. So I'll let you find out from Google. Uh, okay, that is three thousand eight hundred seventy-one yards. I was pretty so close. a little more than thirty-eight football fields. Yeah, like so. For those of you who've ever attended a football game, you know, like they're pretty small from the stands. Uh, imagine that human target now thirty-eight football fields away. That is one really, really small target. This is uh, well under. You know, MOA, you know, MOA minute of angle is, is a classic measurement used for decades and decades and decades to suggest, you know, whether one, you're either a good shot or two, your rifle is accurate. And, you know, if you could hit a one, one MOA target, uh, or sub MOA, like that's considered really good. That's considered to be a really accurate rifle. That's considered to be a really good shot at a hundred yards. One MOA is approximately, it's just, just a hair, a hair, a couple hundredths or thousands over, uh, one inch at 100 yards. So at this distance, it's about a 39-inch target would be considered an MOA target. Well, a human torso is a lot less than a 39-inch target. And so this well, is I know phenomenal people. shooting at that distance. Yeah, I, I'll add, I mean, for those of you, just to add some some understanding, I mean, at that distance, you have to calculate the speed of the Earth's rotation at that latitude. Oh, absolutely. You got to calculate... You know, besides the traditional uh, factors of windage and and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, elevation and so forth, meaning elevation as far as like whether you're shooting down or up, uh, you've got to calculate uh, yes the spin, the rotation of the Earth. You got to calculate humidity. You got to calculate temperature. You got to calculate um, uh, pressure. 
uh, yes, air pressure, barometric pressure, moisture in the air, humidity, all those things have to be factored in that type of shot. And these are all things we were doing, you know, as I was watching my friend Adam go for this 5,000 yard shot in South Dakota, uh, all of that has to be so precisely calculated to even come close to hitting a target at that sort of distance. So just because I don't think we did any justice as far as the actual story as to what happened, uh, this happened, uh, just last week in, uh, 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 I, I thought it was Afghanistan, but I guess this was actually in Iraq. Excuse me. So it says that in Iraq, a sniper hit an ISIS militant from more than two miles away. Uh, and so I don't, I don't know that we have too many more details besides that. But what we know is an ISIS militant, which, hey, I am more than happy to eliminate more and more of those guys every day uh, in this world. Uh, and so uh, there you go. You know, we're, we're taking out ISIS militants from 2.2 miles away with a sniper rifle. Now this was done by a Canadian sniper, uh, not an American one, but I don't care who did it. I applaud them and, uh, thank them for their service. Uh, yeah. So bravo. And, kudos and, and way, to you. To, way to up the bar, you know, for the next, I mean, the previous record it says was held by some British sniper. So, yeah. Hey, you know, if America wants to do it, like, let's go get the record. <laughs> And they surpassed. I'm sure we could find ISIS militants that are further away than that. Right. And they surpassed the uh, previous record by more than a thousand meters. So previously that was held, yes, by a British sniper at 2475 meters. And this was again 3540. So that's a, he smashed that record. Well, there you go. That's, that's really cool stuff. I, I just think it's phenomenal what uh, uh, modern day soldiers are able to to do and achieve. And, and in case anyone's wondering, that was done with a 50 caliber rifle, which I also think is pretty impressive because uh, most of these really long shots nowadays are being done with uh, 408 and 416 caliber guns. This was a 50 caliber, which actually is not generally as, it's not quite as accurate as some of these uh, 416 and 408 caliber guns. All right, so now on to our first justified story, and this one is uh, <laughs> this. So this has got a great title: "Drunk knife wielding home invader gets sobering wake up call." <laughs> it leaves out the best part. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to save that best part for you. This actually happened in Riverton, Utah, where a Riverton homeowner was stunned to see a man invading his home on the night of June 19th. So just last week, beyond the initial shock of seeing a stranger attempt to barge on into his property, there is something extra weird about this. The fact that the knife-wielding man had what, Jacob? No pants on. <laughs> he, he had taken them off as he crossed the street toward this man's home. So you've got a naked, drunk, knife-wielding home invader uh, that uh, is trying to break into this home. Uh, the pantsless man was 36-year-old Derek Palmer, who had just left a friend's house when he decided to start stripping in the middle of the street. Uh, the homeowner first figured out something strange was going on at this point due to his teenage son or sons calling him about the strange man on their street. The boys were just getting home and were about to pull into the garage, but due to seeing the man half naked by their house, they decided to take another swing around the block while phoning their dad. I, you know what? Those are some smart kids right there uh, that uh, did the right thing, uh, I think, uh, as far as noticing something being out of place that wasn't quite right. And uh, rather than continue to either investigate it themselves or confront the individual, they decide to get out of there, 
cruise around the block, call dad, let dad know, hey, dad, something wrong is going on here. Uh, so their dad, after getting that information, he uh, grabs his handgun. Uh, he goes ahead and tells them to, to come on home. Uh, they pull around a second time. Uh, they then uh, uh, they get the attention of the, of the pantsless man. Uh, the boy's father opens up the garage door from inside the house while keeping an eye on the boys as they uh, go to pull in. Now, as the door open, the garage door open, and the boys pull in, the pantsless man, Mr. Palmer, uh, who has now started to put his clothes back on, he begins walking towards the home. And at this point, the man, the homeowner decided to take action. Uh, he, the, uh, uh, Mr. Palmer began getting, moving onto the man's property, following the children of the homeowner. At that point, the homeowner took matters into his own hands and pinned Palmer to the ground. But even though he had been pinned, Palmer kept fighting. After a few minutes, the homeowner got off Palmer and was about to head into the house, locking the drunk Palmer out. However, Palmer picked himself up and went into the man's garage. At this point, the homeowner brandished his handgun and pointed it at Palmer. Palmer was not convinced that the gun was loaded and decided to do some posturing of his own, pulling out a knife. At this point, the homeowner saw that uh, the knife was pulled on him. And I assume, and this is in the garage, so we're talking less than, you know, it, I would say most likely, this is under 20 to 30 feet. At this point, the man, the homeowner, fires two shots, uh, one striking Palmer's jaw, the other striking him in the chest. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, one of the things that I like to always point out in stories like this, and we get stories like this all the time, justified stories where the justified shooter had to go fetch a gun. And so that was the first thing I thought of when I was reading this is like, man, it's another one where we had a positive outcome in that, you know, good people are not hurt. However, you know, lucky for them, they had the time and the opportunity to go fetch that firearm, right? Things could have been different and they might have been stuck in a situation, you know, battling over a knife. So all, you know, one more good example of why you need to always have that gun with you on you all the time. What fascinates me about this story is how... Mr. Palmer, the drunk man, the drunk pantsless man, he continues to escalate things himself. Now, he's under the influence of of alcohol, obviously. So, I mean, big surprise there, right? I mean, that that's a tendency when someone is under the influence of things. Uh, but uh, it's just amazing to me how, you know, it starts out as one thing, it goes to another thing. You know, the homeowner jumps on him, pins him to the ground. Palmer fights back. You know, the homeowner, you know, keeps him tackled there and then eventually the homeowner tried the homeowner basically tried to defuse the situation he goes back you know he walks away goes back to go into the house and at that point you know mr palmer follows him <laughs> then pulls out a knife even after the homeowner pulls out a gun so uh this guy ha- he he got what he deserved as far as i'm concerned uh, he had enough opportunities. He had yeah. many, many opportunities. Uh, the the fortunate thing is that Palmer survives the the whole ordeal. Uh, he's you know going to carry some scars with him for a long time. I suspect the the homeowner is not going to uh, uh, be charged with anything. But it is you know something he, he's going to be want to be he's going to want to be prepared uh, for any civil action that could you know, arise as a result of this, uh, from Mr. Palmer, uh, as, uh, sometimes those sorts of things do come up as well. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good, good lesson to, to have from this one. Go ahead and read yeah. this one from the show notes. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, next up, this is a story from Pennsylvania where a 
once again, it has kind of a similar thread here, but a robber brings a knife to a gunfight. The ending is pretty obvious. That's the title of the article here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so this was in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. Uh, it was a robbery that went horribly wrong uh, as far as the robber was concerned. Great. Yeah, do you yeah, want to tell it, this one? Yeah, I like this one a lot. Um, so <laughs> imagine you have a you have a man, an armed citizen, who's standing on a street corner. I, I don't know, maybe it's a bus stop or something. This is a Sunday morning at 11.30 a.m. A man walks up to the armed citizen armed with a knife. The man with the knife tells the armed citizen he's going to rob him, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rob you or something like, give me your money. To which the other man, the armed citizen, announced, I have a concealed handgun. Something to that effect. I got a gun, probably. The robber was not deterred by the carrier's threat and continues to move toward him, knife displayed, intent on robbing. So at this point, what would what would you do? I, I Probably exactly what this guy did. He retrieved his firearm and shot the guy. Now, here's the interesting part to me. He shot the would-be robber in the leg. Now, why do I say it's interesting? Traditionally... We focus in our industry and, and, you know, as instructors, what we teach people to do is to stop threats. And generally, we consider the most effective way to stop a threat to aim for center mass and to, you know, disrupt blood flow and nervous system functions uh, as, 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 as efficiently as we can. Now, we're, we're not all about killing people. That's not our motto. And we have an episode. What episode was that, Riley? Like episode two I'll, or I'll look it up. or something. Yeah. Uh, where we really hash that out. But... Um, Every once in a while, I'll have a student in one of my classes, Riley, I don't know about you, who will say something like, well, I don't want to hurt anyone. Can I just shoot people in the legs? And I hear that. I really do. I have heard that from from students. And while I think that's very noble uh, motive, unfortunately, A, most of us don't have the the capacity to fire those kinds of accurate shots. I mean, it's a small target, easy to miss, whereas, you know, center mass is called that for a reason. Um, but it also may or may not stop the threat necessarily either in terms of you know, preventing someone from from advancing. Now, in this case, the guy, you know, the threat had a, had a knife, and so it really is about distance. Uh, it's not like he was being shot at, you know, the, the good guy was not being shot at. But anyway, I, I guess that's a complete tangent. Uh, but what's clear is that this armed citizen was prepared. He was armed. He was ready. He issued a verbal command. He, you know, made it very clear that he was prepared. And when the bad guy continued to advance, he drew and he shot, and it worked out. Yeah. So, <laughs> now, by the way, that episode was episode number four, where I think it, the title is Shooting to Kill, Were You Set Up to Fail? Uh, and so, yeah, if you want to go back and listen to that one. Um, it's so true that <sighs> we do see this from time to time, where someone tells about yeah, an incident where they did not want to you know, kill an intruder or kill an attacker, uh, so they do not shoot. You know, in a uh, in, in what I call an appropriate manner, because if you're going to use deadly force, then use deadly force. What you are concerned with in a situation like that is stopping the threat, and you do not always <laughs> nor reliably stop threats when you only shoot to wound. So. Uh, yeah, anyway, this is a, an interesting story. You know, once again, robbers trying to, to rob a guy with a gun with a knife. Uh, I love how the 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 victim, if you will, uh, says, I've got a gun or I've got a concealed gun. And yet, you know, that's not enough to deter the robber, at least initially. Uh, so uh, it's just kind of funny how that all plays out, I think, a little bit. It's, it's similar to that story in Utah, you know, the homeowner pulls out a gun, the 
robber or home invader, you know, is like, oh, that's not loaded, so I'm going to pull out my knife. You know, it's just uh, very, very similar stories in that regard. Anyway, that that wraps up our stories for today. Uh, a couple of really interesting uh, justified stories there. That Utah Utah one is uh, really, I think that's going to be an all time favorite of mine now, Jacob, just because it one of the detail in it, and two, just kind of how that all plays out and the yeah. uh, the way the homeowner I think was able to keep uh, a pretty you know solid head on him as far as like he I think he as far as I could tell he made some pretty good decisions maybe a couple of things maybe I would do a little bit differently but you know who's who's a judge when you're in that situation like that but anyway I think you had something you wanted to share about uh, uh, some feedback we got back from a listener uh, about one of the stories we had last week yeah last week we talked about a Craigslist deal gone bad and in fact I kind of made a point last week when we talked about it, about saying that this kind of thing has happened several times we often have stories where you know people meet together under the guise of um, you know, some sort of private transaction taking place. And one of the parties is either after a free product or, you know, cash, right? And they, they bring they bring a gun or a knife or something. And, and something that was interesting, one of our listeners uh, wrote us a message and he said something that sounded familiar, like maybe I've heard this before, but he, he said that in his area, in his, the metro that he lives in, several of the city police departments have like a section of the police department parking lot set aside for those kinds of transactions. And they have like a camera on that spot and it's well lit and they specifically, you know, invite private, you know, citizens to come and do those transactions in the parking lot of the police station in this, like, this particular spot in the parking lot where it's under camera. And I thought that was really clever. So, if you're listening to this and you have any influence over that kind of a thing, you know, might, you might spread on the idea. Um, and you might just check, you know, it might just be a phone call to a local police department. Hey, you know, do you guys have a place that you recommend this or do you provide a place? Um, I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, so I appreciate, you know, I can't remember who it was who sent us the message. And even if I could remember, they probably don't want me to say their name on there. But uh, thank you for sending us that note. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've seen a couple of departments. I think there's, I don't know which one specifically here in the Denver area, but I want to say I've seen a notice or a news story from one of our local news stations here talking about that, how uh, some of the local departments uh, make that available as an option. Uh, So I would definitely investigate that. I've never personally done that. I have met close to police stations before on some of the deals, you know, that I've done like with Craigslist or whatever. But, uh, yeah, anyway, good good tip, good good feedback from that listener. Mm-hmm. Speaking of feedback, I, I actually just, you know, we gave a little bit of props at the beginning to high BFGGG, <laughs> uh, but also we had two additional listeners leave some feedback this week. I just wanted to give them a personal little shout out. Uh, first of all, Real AK4774, uh, who said that this podcast is like a college level course in all this... Co- in, in concealed carry. Uh, that, I, don't, I can't tell you how much of uh, a smile that put on my face uh, hearing you compare our podcast to being like a college level course in concealed carry. And then the other... Yeah, especially since Riley wanted to be a college professor and was rejected. <laughs> okay. That is totally made up, but uh, but, but but funny nonetheless. And, <laughs> and then uh, the other person is SG Chick who left a review saying this is their favorite podcast uh, that they are very informative, up to date on everything you ever want to know about carrying concealed. Uh, that they enjoy the training tips, guest speakers, and justified real life stories. Thanks for your, all your hard work on these podcasts. So thank you, SG Chick, Real AK four seven seven four, and again, hi BF GGG, who said that Jacob needs to, you know, where's your energy, bro? 
I brought it today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, before we let you go, today's episode was also brought to you by Sports Afield, uh, which you know, you've probably heard these messages before. Uh, we're actually going to share a podcast here in a couple of, in a couple of days on Wednesday this week about accessing your gun quickly, particularly like in the middle of the night. So sp- specifically, Jacob, you did a, a pretty in-depth article about uh, keeping a gun like on the nightstand. And so we're going to do a whole podcast episode about that on Wednesday. And Sports Afield makes these great little safes uh, that are perfect for this sort of task. So if you're concerned with keeping your guns quickly available, which I am, yet also secure, whether it be from someone breaking into your home or especially from a child, which I am very much concerned about. I'm, I'm concerned about both those circumstances. I've got little kids at home. I definitely don't want, you know, a home uh, break in, uh, a thug, you know, getting his hands on my guns because I didn't keep them secure in my home or whatever. Use a sports afield handgun safe. They're very affordable. Uh, go check them out on our website, concealedcarry.com forward slash sports afield. And we still have a 10% off coupon code podcast 10 P O D C A S T one zero for those. So we hope that you'll check those out. And also sports afield has amazing full size rifle safes. We just had somebody a couple days ago, order one of these big safes, uh, from sports afield through our website as well. And, uh, I, am sure they're going to be very happy with that one. Once it arrives today, I have one showing up tomorrow. Ooh, that's exciting. Ooh, I might have to come up and pay a visit just so I can check it out and help carry it. No, sorry. Tough bean. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show up after it's installed. <laughs> <laughs> And today's episode is also brought to you by Mantis X. You know, this last uh, Friday, we had our uh, uh, Guardian Essentials pistol course we talked about earlier. Uh, and one of the students there talked about the Mantis X product and the, and what they learned from using it. That was really cool as an instructor, hearing from one of our students the difference that Mantis X has had and made for them. Uh, it's made a difference in my own shooting. I've learned some things because of it that I otherwise probably wouldn't have. Jacob, I know you're a big fan. So, Folks, if you haven't yet looked into Mantis X, why why wait? Go check it out at concealedcarry.com forward slash Mantis X. That is M-A-N-T-I-S-X. And uh, we have a little video, too, on there that shows a little review that Riley, <laughs> Riley, me, <laughs> and Jacob did uh, about the Mantis X. So go check it out. I think you're going to really enjoy this product uh, as far as it, it's like an instructor in your pocket that you can use anytime. We had a couple of students in our class last week, our Guardian Essentials Pistol class, who, you know, they were raving about Mantis X, how they had picked it up based on a recommendation, and they had learned a lot about how they shoot um, be- because of the help of that product. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Uh, you, you know, it's been kind of a little bit longer episode today. Uh, we had a lot of uh, stories, and plus the whole Philando Castile thing. So uh, I hope that was valuable for you listening to us break some of those situations down uh, and, and, and analyze them and, and talk about what, you know, hopefully you, our listeners, can do better and more correctly. And, and not just in that Philando Castile situation, but also in some of these justified stories that we've shared. So, you know, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up for today. Uh, Jacob, any last words you want to put out there? No, uh, just... You know, guys, carry every single day and any sacrifice you might have to make to make it so that you can carry every day 
is worth it because having the gun is always better than not having the gun. Never forget that. You know, ankle holster as good as on the waist? No. Uh, smaller gun better as good as a big gun? No. Lower ammo capacity as good as higher good as better than than more capacity? No. But it doesn't. You know, at the end of the day, anything that you might have to do that's not awesome that that's at least gets you to be able to carry that gun is better than not having it all. So so remember that if you're ever discouraged, just know that having the gun you've already come a long way to being prepared for the incident that might await you. Yep. Good words of advice. And I'd like to leave you all with some additional words of advice. Uh, We hope that you will train right, train often, train safely, so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Thank you for listening today. We'll see you in a couple of days for our Wednesday episode where we talk about accessing your gun from a nightstand or uh, or quickly in the middle of the night or in other situations. We look forward to, to seeing you then. Take care. We'll catch you next time. reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.